One moment, everyone. Excuse me. Sort of not working the way I was expecting. That's all right. We'll we'll go with what we got tonight. Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to, uh, let me get that light out of my eyes there, and um, welcome to Foundations tonight, what we're doing here on Sunday evenings at King's Church um, as we are looking at foundational doctrines of the Christian faith, and we're continuing in that tonight. The last few weeks, we've been looking at um, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we've been looking at the attributes of God, things about Him that are only true of Him, things about Him that we can share in. Uh, that we spoke a little bit about last night, some great songs that we were singing just around the joy and realities of being uh, known by God and being His children. Um, Tonight, we are going to start shifting gears, start talking about the doctrine of Scripture, and under this question, this idea of how can can we really know God? And so we're going to work through, like each week, I've kind of framed these around answering just a few basic questions, and I'll do the caveat I've been doing nearly every week. These are pretty big topics, um, and there's no way a 30-ish minute talk can do any of them justice in any detail, but there is benefit in doing what we're doing tonight, just in getting a general understanding. So we're going to ask the question of how we can know uh, anything about God. That's our, our first question we'll be looking at tonight. And the only way for us to know anything about God is for Him to show us. For him to reveal it to us, because as we've learned over the last few weeks, one of the things that's true about God is that he is infinite. He is without limit. He is unlimitable. And we obviously are not. And so when we talk about God's communication of himself to us in any form, it is is referred to as revelation and not to be confused uh, with the, the, the final book of the Bible <laughs> that also bears that title. It's a general term. And as we talk about it tonight, we're going to talk about how God has revealed himself in two basic categories of revelation. Uh, one of those being general or universal revelation. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And special or particular Revelation. So what do we mean by these two categories? And as I've said in previous weeks, I really want to encourage you not to ever allow yourself to get overwhelmed by any of the terms, saying general, special, what are all these things talking about? In this instance, the ideas behind these names are fairly straightforward. So if someone walks into a room, let's just say for a purpose of illustration, you can typically deduce some basic conclusions on general observations, can't you? You can look at me, and I'm not going to ask you what you deduce by looking at me, but I'll offer you some, I'll offer you some options. You could deduce that I'm a middle-aged male, either that or graying prematurely, um, descended from European ancestry. Hearing my voice could prompt you to say that I'm an American. I've gotten Canadian at times, frequently, but... Um, If you notice the ring on my left hand, we talked about signs this morning, symbols, right? If you notice the ring on my left hand, it would be reasonable for you to conclude that I'm married. This is general information that is universally available to those who come in contact with me in any kind of general way. But there is particular information that is only available if I or someone else reveals it to you. For example... I am of European ancestry, but of specifically Polish, Irish, and Italian immigrants to the United States. My place of birth is New Jersey, but I've lived in four other 
U.S. states. I am 48 years old and have been married to my wife Amanda for almost 27 years. So there's a basic difference. This is the basic difference between general and special revelation when we're thinking about God. To put it another way, universal and particular revelation. General revelation is what can be discerned about God from, from nature and the things we see around us when what's been created by him. And this, I can't see my screen right now, so I'm hoping this next one's going to be right. Yes. And we can kind of read that good. Um, as we look at the key passage in this is found in Romans chapter 1 about what we can understand about God from nature. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You see, the world as we experience it in nature, as we consider the the universe and everything, it gives testimony to the existence of God and his power. It is sufficient information to acknowledge that he exists and to honor him as God, but it is insufficient to truly know him personally or in any detail. That requires special or particular revelation. John Calvin, the reformer, kind of referred to these two like this. He spoke of the relationship between special and general revelation as the former bringing the latter, so special revelation bringing general revelation into focus. Someone with impaired vision, like me, maybe anyone else in the room, as soon as I take these glasses off, some of you I can still recognize because I know you and I know your general shape and your lack of hair, or what you were wearing earlier, that kind of thing. Yeah, just, let's not talk about any more of that, right? So, but if we put, if I put my glasses back on, then all of a sudden what I can perceive generally, all of a sudden brings in greater detail. The object comes into greater focus in understanding when viewed through a particular lens. And that is why we need special revelation to help us fully appreciate general revelation and to genuinely know God. By special revelation, we mean this. By special revelation, we mean God's manifestation of himself to particular persons at definite times and places, enabling those persons to enter into a redemptive relationship with him. General revelation, without excuse to know that there is a God, and that we're to honor him as God, but insufficient that we would know how to enter into relationship with him. Special or particular revelation is what can be known about God through the scriptures and through the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews, in the first chapter, we find these verses. Speaking of Jesus, it says, uh, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. 
So this, this verse, the reason I selected it tonight is it, it carries two thoughts. It's saying in the past God spoke divine speech, one mode of special revelation. And then it also talks about the pinnacle of special revelation in the incarnation of Jesus. And it is in through Jesus and the words of Scripture that we as human beings can truly come to know God both objectively, facts about him, essential data about him that we could not get from nature, but also how he invites us and how he's made provision for us to have a relationship with him. In 2 Timothy, right? Yes, good. <laughs> it's, it's down here on the uh, curtain for you if you're wondering. Uh, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, The Apostle Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In this verse, these series of verses here, Paul reminded Timothy that it was the scriptures that opened his eyes to see Jesus as the source of salvation, and they are the means by which a person's life comes into alignment with the life of of God when he says for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Remember we talked about God's righteousness as one of his attributes that we might come into alignment with that. So in answer to our first question, again briefly, how can we know God or anything about him? So we need to say that it is only through him revealing himself. It is only through revelation But this last passage in 2 Timothy also points us to the answer for our second question we're going to be looking at tonight, and that is, what makes the Bible different from other books? When we said this is special revelation, what makes it different than than other books? And we'll say that the Bible makes the assertion that the words of Scripture are inspired by God. There was a phrase uh, in those verses of God breathe, and inspiration is a a term that is expressed in that. Think of our word for um, respiration, right? Again, this is one of those big you know, words, inspiration, one of these words means, but we know that word. We know, you know, that's about breathing. And it's saying that inspiration describes the process by which the Holy Spirit influenced the writers of Scripture so that what they wrote is accurate and trustworthy and is a revelation of God. He says as though the scriptures are breathed out. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 describe this process a little bit differently of how God spoke through the writers of scripture. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Fascinating verses about how Scripture came together. It says, as the human authors of Scripture composed their writings, 
The Holy Spirit carried them along, working through their use and selection of language so that what they wrote is not simply their own words, but also God's. See, the process of inspiration does not equate to the authors becoming sacred secretaries and taking dictation for God, nor were they, you know, mindless, unengaged mediums who just kind of went into the zone and the pen moved and they, they recorded. That's not how God, you know, God didn't channel his message through them in that way. Inspiration was this dynamic process of divine influence so that the writings are both human, but also divine. And through that influence of God's Holy Spirit, guaranteed as his and trustworthy. And this is why you hear us refer, as we come to the Bible, as God's word. But if you listen to a message on a Sunday morning or or hear that, you'll also hear us say in the next breath, refer to what Paul or Peter or John is saying, because that's how it worked. As they wrote and used their mind and expressed themselves in their language and their culture, the Holy Spirit was moving to carry them along to safeguard and to ensure that what he wanted communicated came out through Scripture. This is what the Bible claims for itself. Now, you might be thinking, though, if the Bible claims that for itself, isn't that rather convenient? I mean, you say that the Bible is inspired because the Bible says... It's inspired. Now, just because the Bible, this must be clear, makes that claim for itself, it does not mean that claim is invalid, does it? I mean, if I, I can't anymore, but if I got and said, you know, I, I think I could dunk a basketball. Now, there was a time I could do that, but just simply me saying, I think I can dunk a basketball. Well, you're saying, well, you're just saying you can dunk a basketball, but I can, or I could. Now let me, just because someone claims something or something is claimed of itself doesn't invalidate it. You have to look further. And you could ask yourself, what can be pointed to in support of this claim to the inspiration of Scripture? And again, time doesn't permit for us to go through a thorough answer, but I'd just like to put forward two points for you to consider and to perhaps pursue further if that's your thinking. The first of which is if you go through the pages of Scripture and see its trajectory and its flow throughout history, is the first category of fulfilled prophecy, of which there is an extensive amount, so much so that it cannot be dismissed or ignored with integrity. You look at the, the passages particularly of Isaiah's suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, written hundreds of years before the person of Christ, yet so clearly connected with his life, his suffering, and his death. So fulfilled prophecy cannot be explained by simple human composition. Secondly, we spoke about this in our Bible overview, but there is a unity to the Bible's content and ultimate message that defies explanation without divine involvement. Why is that, you might ask? We mentioned this in the autumn, but I want to say it by way of review or for the first time for some of us, that the Bible is made up of 66 individual books. And of those 66 individual books, they were written over roughly 1,500 years by up to 40 different human authors in locations spanning from Babylon in modern-day Iraq 
to modern-day Israel, to Egypt, to modern-day Greece and Turkey and Rome. Huge swath over cultural differences and times and many different things. Now, human experience gives evidence to the fact that that unity that is demonstrated in the pages of the Bible is only explicable through God's influence on the process. Because in in any given week, how frequently do we get communication mixed up and wrong? Or a day. And we're talking about thousands of years, multiple authors, different settings and cultures and perspectives. It speaks to another influence, a divine influence. And just one final thought here as we speak about inspiration, what we are referring to is what the original authors wrote. What the original authors wrote, often what's called autographs, which wasn't, you know, Paul, Paul, can we have your autograph? Paul, you know, Moses, uh, no, the autographs meaning they, what they wrote, what that author wrote, the original writings penned by the authors are what are inspired. And what we use, as I held this up earlier, are faithful translations of those originals based off of manuscripts. I think I have a picture maybe, yeah, something like that. There's Greek manuscripts. And it bothers some people to think that we're not working with the originals. How can we know that what we have in our hands is a faithful representation of what God revealed? Because if the only way for me to know God is through revelation, how am I to know that this copy is, is worthwhile? Again, just some brief thoughts here. I can't go exhaustively on this, but um, first, in terms of ancient documents and how we ascertain whether they are accurate and worthwhile in terms of their uh, sources and such, the New Testament, we'll just say the New Testament, is without doubt the like, best attested ancient document in the world in terms of the number, the, the early date, the quality of manuscripts like this. And you may be saying, my head's starting to spin. What does all that mean? See, modern translations are, are based on these manuscripts, all right? And what this means is as we have a lot of them, and if they're in good shape and they go back really early, think of the telephone game. We don't really play the telephone game anymore, probably anyway, but you know how you send a message around the room person to person? Usually the closer you get to the source, what's true? The more accurate the message is. So with the manuscripts, the earlier we can get them, all these different things by which we can assess their quality means they can be cross-referenced against one another. And we can have high confidence to such an extent that is accurately reflecting the original. That, that, that confidence is like, like extremely high, like 995 or 7%, something like that. But it is extraordinarily high. And so these modern translations represent the best efforts of scholars way more intelligent than me. <laughs> to understand and faithfully communicate what they are finding in these manuscripts. And every once in a while, they'll come across something really small, a small little detail. You'll find a footnote in your Bible, or they'll just occasionally, oh, there's a little tweak. But as we're talking about the foundational doctrines of Christianity on these Sunday evenings, there's not one single major essential Christian doctrine 
that has ever been called into question by one of those small, detailed corrections. Does that make sense? And so, as we read a reputable translation of the Bible, a modern one, what that means is you can do so with the legitimate sense that as you open it, whether it's in the morning or in the evening or on the train or on the bus or as you're here, you can open it up and saying, I'm hearing from God as I read this. It is his word. So that is how the Bible is different from other books as special revelation. And why do we only acknowledge the books in the Bible, those 66 that I referred to earlier, as God's word? Why do we only have 66 books? Why are only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for instance, accepted as inspired gospels? What we're going to talk about now, the contents of Scripture, it's um, what's called the canon. And it's not a canon that would have been aboard a British ship back in the day of boom, you know, and plunge it out in front. No, it's, it's one N, C-A-N-O-N, more like the camera. And um, it's the term that refers to the list of books that are considered inspired by God. The word canon comes from a word meaning measuring rod, or like a ruler. And so the canon is the idea of those books that when compared against certain qualities that gave evidence to this sense of, of inspiration upon them. And so contrary to much modern criticism, if you've watched some popular things like, oh, probably like a decade ago now, man, it's, it's a little ways back, but things like the Da Vinci Code and stuff, um, the church, meaning, you know, church universal, not any specific like, you know, organized thing we're talking about here, the church didn't decide like, hmm, which books do we really want? You know, which, which are the ones we want? Which books? They didn't decide it that way, but they, they rather were forced themselves, according to some certain standards, to kind of recognize it. Not decide, like some power play, but rather to humbly look at some writings and decide, according to some things there, to recognize um, which were inspired. It was not a conspiracy, <laughs> but it was a collective acknowledgement through these councils. And I'll get into a history lesson here, but these councils by the church. So without going into a detailed history of events, by the time of Jesus, there was near universal agreement regarding the Old Testament. So it was, you know, the content of the Old Testament in Judaism was pretty near set, the, the 39 books there. These were simply acknowledged and accepted as God's word via Moses, because they came via Moses and, and the prophets and so forth. But even so, as we came to the New Testament, after the life of Jesus and the early church, um, we can look at how the church approached the writings in the New Testament era and see how it sheds light on probably how they would have viewed the Old Testament as well uh, in the same respects. And without, again, some of my professors in seminary and Bible college would kill me for this, but I'm going to simplify it down to some three basic questions about the process. Remember, I'm from New Jersey, so I want to keep this very simple, okay? Who wrote it? Question number one, who wrote it? For a writing to be considered inspired, it had to be connected with an authoritative, recognized messenger. Someone who was a recognized prophet or apostle or closely associated with them, even if the specific author was unknown. So in the, in the New Testament, to give you an example, Hebrews 
We don't know who the specific author was, but there's evidence as we will go through the book of Hebrews later on this year that it is in alignment with apostolic teaching. And that's the second question. What does it teach? If a book is from God, one would expect that there would be qualities about it to demonstrate that. There would be unity, agreement, and coherence with what had already been received as having come from God. If there was an overt contradiction of everything else that God had revealed, well, then you would seriously question that. And this question was important because sometimes people would hijack an apostle's name in order to lend weight to their message. So if you had your own you know, gospel that you wanted to write, you might start circulating it as the apostle, you know, the gospel according to the apostle Peter even though he had nothing to do with it, and perhaps its teachings would not reflect what the Apostle Peter would have passed on or whoever's name had been hijacked. So it was not only who wrote it, what did it teach, but also was it widely recognized by the church? Was there this broad acknowledgement of a book being used and recognized as being used by the Spirit of God in their midst in the life and ministry of churches and individuals and seeing the life of Christ. So this wasn't a popularity contest. This wasn't, you know, uh, Simon Cowell, you know, sitting there, you know, and they're saying, okay, I like this act. This one worked well, you know, that kind of thing. It, It wasn't like that at all. It was simply them collectively saying, and you would think there would be this conviction and a consensus if God was really moving through a set, you know, a group of books that they would have honestly and with integrity come together and say, yes, we've seen God use this in our midst. It was a humble posture, not one of, um, of power or of repression or of conspiracy. It was a genuine process to acknowledge a body of writings through which God had revealed himself. And that's important because as we finish tonight, remember the questions we've been asking. We cannot know God or anything about God Unless he reveals it. That was the first thing. Secondly, inspiration is as we come to this book saying there's general and special revelation and the only way for us to know God for who he really is and how to have a relationship with him is through special revelation. What makes this book different from any other book? And as we read it, why did, why did early Christians and followers of Jesus say these are the books God has given us through which to know him, for our eyes to be opened up to salvation, to be corrected, to be rebuked, to be trained in righteousness. What were those things? So the process of how we have the Bible today was valid and it was trustworthy and it wasn't a power play. So just some closing thoughts about knowing God in this way. And I think specifically because when I was, oh, probably in my late teens, early 20s, I struggled with this whole idea of how can I know, how can I know these things? How can I know this is valid? How can I know this is the only thing? I think if the Bible makes exclusive truth claims, which it does, and there is valid evidence for its inspiration, of which I just touched upon tonight, there is scads more. 
It is not foolish to accept it without exhaustive knowledge of all other alternatives. Does that make sense? It means you don't have to wait until you've explored all other things in detail to come to this and say, this is true. If there's valid evidence for what it is, there is valid evidence to accept it and to accept what it says. That would not be foolish. What would be unwise would be to casually dismiss ignore, or for those of us who have been convinced of its truthfulness, to just neglect that word and what God has to say about himself and us. Because the fact that God has revealed himself to us is an amazing privilege. And this book that we have is a treasure through which we can know him and be transformed. We'll close with these verses and then we'll, uh, we'll sing and conclude our time. But his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. <clears throat> through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that it is possible to know you. We thank you that you have come down to our level to show who you are to us. Thank you that you've done it in ways that our finite minds can comprehend. And you've given it to us in a way that is enduring through a process that was trustworthy and you have safeguarded it in a way that we can have such high confidence, still requiring faith, but not blind faith, not dogmatic faith. You've given us evidence that points us to the truth of your word, your word that makes us wise unto salvation in Jesus, and through your Holy Spirit is used to bring us into greater uh, fellowship with you. That is, these verses that we just concluded with say that we can become partakers of the divine nature. We can have the life of God manifested in us through your spirit, transforming us from the inside out for your glory. And so, Lord, as we um, finish our time together tonight, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the divine written word, the, the Bible. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the living word. And that through you and through the written testimony of you in your, in your scriptures, we can come to know you in a, a real, genuine, life-transforming way. So, Father, please, would you use this time we've had together tonight to lead each of us forward in this journey of where we are with you, whether we need to be reminded of these things and refreshed, that we might walk forward with new commitment and dependence upon you, or if there's someone here tonight who's exploring, who is curious but unconvinced, that you and your spirit would lead them forward through these questions towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name.